This morning we finished a series uh, that we've been going through for the last four weeks now in discipleship. And uh, next week we're doing an exchange, a, a pulpit exchange. So I'll be preaching at City Center Church in Brampton, uh, sorry, in Mississauga. And Derek Bartlett, who's the pastor of City Center, will be preaching here. It's a fellow uh, fellowship Baptist church, and Derek's a, a good friend of ours as a staff, and our church's uh, our staffs have enjoyed getting to know each other. So I'm sorry. I've been trying to get Derek to come here for some time because I wanted to hear him preach. And, uh, and then he's like, okay, James, I'll come, but you have to come to my pulpit. So I'm sorry that I'm going to miss out on it, but I'm glad Derek will be here with you next week. And then after that, we're going to start a series in the book of Job, which I'm really excited about. So it's uh, exciting days coming up for us, and I'm excited about this sermon in front of us today. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. This has kind of been our anchor passage as we've been doing this series in uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, and uh, you can find that on page 977 in the passage in, uh, on the Pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, on page 977. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can be seated as we pray. Father, I know my own weakness. I know that I can't, uh, through determination of my will or through exercising of my gifts or through my ingenuity or anything like that, um, accomplish anything of eternal worth this morning. And I know my weakness. Probably we all feel that way gathering here as we listen to your word, as we listen to it preach. We can be easily distracted. We can uh, feel so overwhelmed by what's happened this last week or month or whatever else that it's hard for us to pay attention. And we're well aware that um, for there to be real change and real work in our midst, it's going to have to be your spirit at work and not our, not our will, though certainly our wills are in favor of that. So, Father, we are asking as a church that you would work, work through me, work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, I received an email from Lindsay Stortz. She'd sent it to a group of us who were part of a tight-knit group of friends, Christian friends back in university. And she was passing along to us a letter from Carrie Wong. Carrie was part of that group of tight-knit friends. She was the quiet type, but whenever she was with us, she sat there with her eyes open in wonder, her, her body radiating a joy and excitement like she was discovering a new and beautiful world for the first time. It was as if her eyes bounced with excitement. See, Carrie had grown up in a non-Christian home that wasn't normal or healthy. And she was hurting. She was hungry. And then... She found Christ and the good news of the gospel. And I want to read a few words from the letter that she sent to Lindsay, which Lindsay sent to all of us. This was a letter from back in their days in university. 
She wrote, I am humbled every time I approach the throne of God, offering my best, which is but filthy rags, to God. I stand there inadequate and sinful before purity and holiness. My heart breaks, and I am moved to tears and gratitude when I remember that though I am broken, God loves me and pours out his grace, mercy, and goodness to me because of what Christ has done. It's so amazing that I'm so dirty and sinful, but he's clothed me in purity and in white because Christ advocated for me, pleading for me when really I'm the one who deserves death and the wrath of God. She writes, I cannot doubt anymore that he loves me. And God loves you, Lindsay. He always has and will always. He waits for you. Run to him. A few years after graduating, a few years after writing that note, Carrie Carly Wong contracted a rare disease and died. When Lindsay looks back on those years in university, what do you think is the most meaningful to her? Do you think she looks back and, and finds the most meaning in those fun times our group had, hanging out in section four until late in the night playing games? Or maybe the opportunity she had educationally to learn under some of the foremost minds in public policy? No, we all know. What's most meaningful is pouring in to Carrie Wong so that she knew Christ better and was able to see her life transformed, her face lifted up, and hope fill her sails. You see, when we become Christians, our very DNA changes. God remakes us so that we now are little agents of His reflecting His goodness to the world. And so what we delight in, our desires change. What we delight in becomes something new. We delight in being used of Him to see lives transformed. As we've been looking at the last three weeks in this series, we become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that's designed specifically to declare His excellencies to a world that's in darkness, showing them that we've been moved, transferred from the domain of darkness into His wonderful light. And so we walk as little beacons of light in a dark world, just like Lindsay was for Carrie, and then Carrie was for Lindsay. So maybe you're here today, and you aren't a follower of Christ. You hear me talk about Christianity in terms of these walking lights that bring hope, and you go, wait a second, that's not what I thought a Christian was. Perhaps your idea of what it means to be a Christian is some sort of to-do list of things you do and things you don't. So a Christian is someone who doesn't do drugs, who doesn't sleep around, who doesn't cuss, and who does go to church, and who does go to prayer, do these things, check, check, check. That's what a Christian is. If you've been with us for some time, you were with us when we were studying Matthew, the book of Matthew together in the Bible. And there we saw that actually the religious system that Jesus takes aim at is the check, 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 religious to-do list, religious system. And it's not that any of the to-do things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, many of them are good things that we're called to do. But what Jesus was taking aim at was a mentality that if I just do this checklist, I'm good. Because such a system allows our crusty, sinful hearts to remain unaddressed while at the same time allowing us to create this facade that we are good, that we're righteous, that everything's okay, when, when in reality 
our hearts are far, far from God. You see, when someone becomes a Christian, their heart is fundamentally transformed. It's changed by God. And then they become contagious with a joy and a love and a life that God has given them that they want to share with others. And yes, that does shape our view on things like sex or church. But all that flows from a heart that's been changed. Yeah, it's true. I'm not saying you'll never hear a Christian curse, but we don't curse. But it's not just because we're trying to avoid vulgarity. We realize our tongues were created for a purpose. And it's to bless others, to speak kindness, to speak truth, to encourage, and to give hope. So we have a new way of thinking about our tongue as little deposits of God. What would God's character, how could God's character be reflected through my tongue? And it's not going to be through cursing, but that's not the checklist that makes us righteous. Does that make sense? You see, Christianity at its core, and this is what we've been seeing these last three weeks, Christianity at its core is about a heart that is fundamentally changed. We receive a new DNA. Instead of seeking ourself and our self-made righteousness, we seek to serve others and reflect the glory of God's great name and His forgiveness and His grace as he works on us in the process of making us new. For the Christian, the world cannot offer any joy that compares with being used of God to see other people's lives transformed. And Lindsay's email this week was a reminder of that. And that's exactly what we see in a story in John's Gospel in chapter 4, which I want to look at. You can open there. It's on page 888 in your pew Bible. John chapter 4. We're just going to spend a few minutes here. It's an amazing story that just captures exactly what I'm talking about. What it truly means to be a Christian. It's a story of uh, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. Now Samaria was a place that Jews wouldn't associate with because there was a kind of a latent racism there. Um, they were this, this half-breed nation. They weren't purebred Jews, and they were pagans, and they worshipped false gods and all sorts of other things. So Jews looked down on the Samaritans and wouldn't travel through Samaria. But here's Jesus with his 12 disciples traveling through Samaria. His disciples go into town. He's standing in the heat of the day, and a woman walks up to him. Now, it would have been customary in that day, given the, uh, the dynamics between men and women, that um, Jesus wouldn't have associated with a woman. He, that would have been what would have been expected culturally. And especially a woman who's traveling in the middle of the day to collect water because that means there's some social stigma attached to her, which we find out later in the story is because she's uh, basically had uh, husband after husband, which even by today's standards what she was doing would have been ridiculous. But by then, she would have been a complete cultural outcast, and she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And Jesus engages her. He asks for a drink to start a conversation about water. And this is, how he, this is what he says to her, picking up in verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus says to this woman who would have been part of this uh, looked down upon segment of society, the Samaritans, who amongst the Samaritans is so socially stigmatized that she has to keep to herself and go in the hot of day, the heat of day, to collect her water so she won't have to... I don't know if any of you ever feel that way, right? I can't even go to the grocery store because someone... You know, I'm afraid of... Because of how I'm perceived, who I am, and the sin that... That's how the woman felt, right? And what does Jesus say to her? He says, I have water for you that I'll actually turn you into the spring. That there becomes a spring of water within you that wells up from you and becomes life, eternal life to 
all whom this water touches. What a dramatic picture. A woman who can't even associate with people gathering water. And he's saying, now the water is going to flow from you. And it's going to be a spring that wells up and it touches everything and brings everlasting life to those it touches. Grand rhetoric, Jesus. But really, this adulterous Samaritan woman... Well, they have a little bit more conversation about what true worship is, and she comes to realize this is the Messiah, and she embraces this truth. And then look what it says in verses 28 and 29. The disciples come back, and it says, So the woman left, she left her water jar, and went away into town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be? The Christ. Living water. A spring of living water within her, flowing out of her and touching her whole town. And then look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Do you know where the disciples had just been? In town. But who is it that goes into town and the living water flows out of and it touches and they all say, really? And they come and they hear Jesus and they believe because of the woman's testimony and then ultimately because of the word that Jesus preaches. That's the picture of what Christianity is. You see, Jesus will say a little bit later in the Gospel of John that 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 water is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit within us that is is this life-giving water. When we embrace Christ, we are so fundamentally transformed that His Holy Spirit is deposited in us and we become this little spring of water and the water from us flows out and touches others. That's what we are as Christians. We're broken, sinful people who've been reclaimed and remade by God's grace so that the very gospel that gave us life can be shared with others. That's how the Gospel of Matthew ends, right? So he, be, you know, much of the Gospel is saying, no, no, it's not just this to-do list where you let this heart stay stale and crusty, but you feel good about yourself because you're better than everybody else. No. He's saying it's, it's a heart change, and how does he end? He says, therefore go and make people disciples of me, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. He calls us to be these fountains of water that go and touch everybody and help everyone grow more and more like Christ. That as a, as a picture, that John 4 picture, is really getting after what we've said the last three weeks. And if you haven't been with us the last three weeks, you can go and listen to those sermons online. But it's what it means to be a follower of Christ. To have that living water flow out of you. It's why when I came and you heard me uh, almost three years ago talking about our church, I would say, uh, I'd say my vision for this church is that there would be a culture of discipleship. What I meant is that the natural thing going on in this body is the life-giving waters touching us all and pushing us all more and more towards Christ. And then that same theme we saw emerging from our study in Matthew. This key theme of making disciples, culminating in the Great Commission at the end. And so last year, the elders set out to say, how do we go about, as a church, accomplishing this goal that every member be a disciple-maker? And what I'm going to do today, and the remainder of the time I have with you, is tell you what we as the elders have come up with as a kind of tentative plan or a a building, you know, kind of the basic building blocks of the plan that we have for taking these realities that we just talked about and fostering that as a community. So here's the plan. 
that we've spent the last year praying about, developing, and forming. The plan is you. You let the living water in you spring up and touch others. You love your friends genuinely. Love them and then share with them the light of the gospel. You love your fellow believers and do what you can to help them grow to be more like Christ. I say you, obviously I mean me too, all of us. In other words, our plan is nothing more than our goal. Our goal is every member a disciple maker, and that's also our plan. Everybody do it. I remember uh, some years ago, I went to a spot that I like to sit at, that I'd like to sit at and, and just kind of reflect and be with the Lord. And it overlooked a pond. It's more of a, somewhere between a pond and a lake. And it was dusk. And just before the sun started to set, a calm set, on, set in over that water so that it was smooth as glass, a perfect mirror for the sky and everything without a ripple. Being the young man that I was, I grabbed a big rock and I threw it as far as I could to see how far and whoosh, big splash and then the ripples, I watched to move across the whole body of water, eventually making their way to the shore that I was standing on. Felt good about myself, got that out. You know, that's how I reflect with God. So then I sat and thought some more. And just then, the bugs started to come out. And that same glass plane of water was now covered in ripples, as little water bugs all around the water made their little tiny splashes. And yet, the effect of all these water bugs making their little ripples and continuing to make their little ripples was actually a more profound rippling effect than my big stone that I had thrown in. Sometimes we think about how we, how we are going to bring change in this church, how we going to or how we going to culture that cultivate this culture of discipleship within this church, and we think we need some big rock that we can throw in and push some big program. But maybe the more profound influence is when each one of us little water bugs in our little world wherever we are is making our own ripple, our own little light for Christ. Now, it's not that the big rocks, the big programs are inherently wrong. I think of the, the, uh, the image I have for myself is um, when I moved from Texas to here, I was clearing out my office in Lindale, and I, I had one spot on my shelf that had been untouched for a couple of years. I had a stack of these really nice chocolates that were now past expiration and had been unopened, and a, and a box of mugs. FBC Lindale mugs with a logo on them. And they represented my best effort at a, at a plan for reaching the lost people in our community. So I had, I had identified a few of the people who are most keen on sharing the gospel with the biggest heart for the gospel, and I'd gotten them together, and I'd trained them in a, in a method for sharing the gospel. And also, I had created this program that was uh, anyone who was a visitor to our church or anyone who someone in our church had a contact with and said they could use a visit to share the gospel with, I, would, I, would had, a, I had a way we would bring all those contacts together, and this team that I would train would then go and follow up door-to-door -door with a visit, and my idea was a mug full of chocolates, and go to that door, offer them that mug full of chocolates, and have a conversation with them, see where they're at, and help them learn the gospel. 
I, I, I made the program well aware of the importance of personal context. So I trained these people, you know, okay, after you've shared the gospel with them, they start coming to church, you want to make sure they connect with somebody, and there's a personal relationship with it. So it wasn't like it was this, you know, ill-planned mechanism. The only bad idea was the chocolates in the mug. There was a lot that worked well about it. I wouldn't necessarily do it again or do it differently if I did it again, except for the mugs and chocolates. But what I'm excited about is instead of getting, you know, a few of the people who are most keen about that and unleashing them and saying, that's our program and get plugged into this, what I'm saying or what our elders are saying is I think much more in keeping with kind of the ethos in the scriptures. And that is just every one of us being a wellspring of life in whatever contacts and spheres we have. So the family members you have, maybe your children who aren't yet followers of Christ, or maybe a neighbor or a coworker, an extended family member, or somebody you see regularly at the grocery store or at your favorite restaurant. That life-giving water is flowing out of you to them. Every one of us. You see, our plan is actually the anti-plan. It's, it's just, do it. And you can think of that in terms of discipleship, too. You know, it's nice to have a big rock. So somebody comes to the church, they need to grow, let's get them plugged into this program. We have these, you know, nifty whatever, some catchy name for them. Um, get plugged into this group, and away you grow. But what if we just said, no, it's your responsibility to see other people in the church and love them and care for them and pour into them and help them grow. I think of uh, uh, Bev Comfort, who came to me uh, a couple months ago, and she'd been reading a book on theology. It's like that thick, and like I read the table of contents and didn't know what it was talking about. It was that kind of book of theology. And she's like, I want to study this with a group of women. It's beautiful. So we talked about it a little bit, and we chose a different book on theology that also is really rigorous, but not quite as heady as that one. And she just started talking to some women that she knows and says, do you want to study theology with me? And so now, every Monday night, there are 12 women from our church gathering together to study theology. I've never been in a church where that happened. Have you ever heard of that? It's beautiful, and it wasn't because we had this big rock that we threw into the water, and we're going to have a system where you study theology, and no. It was just somebody who had a heart for that and wanted to pour into others. And then there was other women who God's Spirit was moving in and we gathered together and they're doing that. And things like that are happening all over our church and that's what we're saying we're moving toward. What we're after, of course, is that all the saints are doing the work of the ministry. We're saying a program sometimes can tune us into sort of that religious to-do list. If I just attend this small group and read this study, it will keep me healthy. We're saying, no, we want you to be bearing fruit, the fruit of a new heart and an indwelling spirit. Uh, my name's James Richard. I'm named after my dad's two full brothers. And my uncle, Rich, passed away last year. What I remember a lot about Uncle Rich, but one of one of my vivid memories is the garden he had in the back of his house. It was amazing. But there was something about his garden. It was a, he had planned it carefully. He'd arranged it. He'd planted things. He, he tried to weed things on occasion. But he really just let it grow on its own with a wild beauty. It was very different than those manicured gardens that this plant for this season with nothing around it that kind of features that plant it wasn't engineered. It was just planted, watered, taken care of, and let the beauty of the plants do the work. There was some, some order, but the growth was, growth was natural and somewhat unpredictable. It wasn't forced. And that's what we're going for here. We want to be like my Uncle Rich's garden. Not some manicured garden where 
over here we have those who reach out to the lost. Over here is the new believers. And over here is the people who are, you know, that's not what we're going for. We're going for, hey, all these things should be growing and there should be beauty in our midst. And it's, yes, there's a certain order to it. Yes, there's a certain planning to it. Yes, there's someone who's, who's looking after the garden. But at the same time, there's, there's flowers doing things you didn't know they would do and growth happening that you weren't expecting and something's happening here, all led by God's Spirit who indwells each one of us who is a believer. You see, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have God's Spirit within you. And that means every one of us who is a follower of Christ has a spring of water. And all we're saying our plan is is to turn on that faucet. Now, with my point being made about this isn't engineered and this isn't, uh, you know, the big rock, it's all of us. It's the plan is the anti-plan. I want to say we are aware that there are a couple of dangers in this model. The first danger that I want to identify is that we could be reaching people with things that aren't solid. In the course of our time digging into God's Word over the last few years, we found out that sadly, too much of evangelicalism simply takes everything that the surrounding culture is selling and repackages it with God on the label and a few verses ripped from their context and put to go with it. Or in other pockets of evangelicalism, we find ourselves drawn to certain brilliant authors who has his own ideas, his thoughts, and his plans, again, propped up with some Bible verses. But we want to be people of the book. We want to be people who are governed by the Bible, who are allowing the Bible to drive things, who aren't regurgitating something of the man-made... We're not regurgitating the the man-made froth that comes from our world and masquerade that as if it's the Bible. So how do we fix that? Two things. One, simple thing, we're going to develop a section in our library, Susan and I have already been working on this, that has resources that are dedicated to things that you can use when you're discipling somebody. You have a relationship with somebody who's interested in Christianity, wants to know a little bit more about the Bible, here are three studies you can use and walk through with them that help them dig into the Bible and see what Christianity is all about. Somebody who's newly embraced Christ is trying to figure out what that means. Here are a couple different resources that you can take them through that go into the Bible and help them get some nice foundations. You want to get together and have a Bible study, just digging into a book of the Bible with somebody? Here's some resources, a study guide, uh, some generic things that could work in any context that you can use to do a Bible study with somebody thinking about the issue of parenting or what it means to be a woman or a man or how to have a good marriage or things like that, here are a few resources that actually dig into what the Bible has to say about those things and would be good resources to dig into. You're walking with somebody who's dealing with depression or is fighting against anger or is addicted to pornography or whatever else it is and you want to know how to walk with that person through that, here's some resources that could be really helpful for you in that. So that's one thing. It's just a dedicated discipleship section of our library that you can walk in and know anything on this shelf is something I can use. But the other fix is actually a pretty big one. It goes back to Ephesians 4 that I read at the outset that we spent a lot of time in over the last few weeks. See, it's true that we are all saints and we are all called to do the work of the ministry. We're all called to speak God's word in a loving way to others. But in order to do it, Ephesians says, the shepherd teachers are responsible for equipping us to do that work. So that's where our effort is going to lie. We as elders want to give our energy to equipping every believer to being a disciple maker. So here's the big unveil. Don't let the big unveil distract you from the plan, which is the anti-plan. Here's the big unveil. In the fall, we are introducing a discipleship hour at 9 o'clock. And we're uh, we're laying out four different courses. We're calling them four core courses. 
that we are asking every believer, every member in our church to go through. These courses are not just information for your head, though they are certainly that. But if you take this course, there's going to be outside work required, and it's going to be people-to-people work, where you're actually doing the work of ministry even while we're equipping you to do that. So the four courses are, first is a course called The Course of Your Life. This is kind of a bedrock course that lays out the basic paradigm for what we've been looking at the last few weeks, what God is doing in this world, and how that should affect the course of my life. That's the first course. The second one is called Two Ways to Live. It's a course that teaches you how to go into the Bible, starting in Genesis, and show somebody what the story of God's redemption plan is. In other words, it's how to share the gospel, not just from one verse, but from the whole Bible. And equipping you with ways to share that gospel with friends, neighbors, co-workers, family. The third course is called How People Change. And it takes some of these principles that we've seen in the other courses and, and shows how they bear out in walking with people who are going through hard times. So how do you walk through crisis with people in light of God's word? And the fourth course is called The Teaching Circle. And it's basically equipping you to better study and teach the Bible with other people, whether that's in a one-on-one context, in your family, or whatever context. Each of these courses is is nine weeks long. So when I say there'll be a discipleship hour starting in the fall, in the fall there'll be a nine-week course. Then in the new year, in the winter, there'll be a nine-week course. And then in the spring, after spring March break, there'll be a nine-week course. So it's not every Sunday, it's just these nine-week courses. During that discipleship hour, with those nine weeks, we'll have something going for every age group that is oriented towards pouring God's truth into their lives. So you bring your baby, there'll be somebody in the nursery who takes that baby in their arms and prays over that baby, speaks words of scripture over that baby, sings a song that's true over that baby. Your preschoolers, elementary age kids will have a program for them that is actually teaching them the Bible. And junior high and high school as well. So everybody can be involved in this. The idea is that we'll, we'll let you know what courses are being offered during that nine-week unit. There'll probably be two or three courses being offered. If you're willing to make the commitment to really attend, you know, maybe you might have to miss a week because of travel or something like that, but you're really committed to attending and doing the outside work, you sign up, and if you have children, you sign up your family, your kids, so we know what to expect. And then for those nine weeks, you come and you go hard for nine weeks, hard after really being trained. And then... We're done. You take a break and back to, okay, I can sleep in a little bit on Sunday mornings again. We don't even expect that everyone in our church will do every unit, you know? So somebody might say, okay, let's do, we can do the fall. Let's do the fall, okay, but we we need a break. We need a break over winter and maybe even over spring, but then the next fall we can do it again. So it's not like, hey, in one year's time you have to have four courses completed. No, it's just you're moving in that direction, right? Now you hear that. You go, that's a lot of work to have a whole program for kids and things like that. It is, and we don't want just workers for that. We want people who have a heart for discipleship, who want to be the the water springing the life in our children. But I'm confident that as as God is working, he's going to raise up some of you to be willing to step forward and do some of that work. So you can say, hey, this nine weeks I'm going to serve the children. Next nine weeks... I'll take a course. Next nine weeks, I'll take something off. I'll, I'll take that time off or something like that. Does that. Do you see what the picture is, kind of what we're talking about? And the idea here, again, is us equipping you to do the work of ministry. We want to take our responsibility seriously. And we feel like if everyone in our, court, in our church has these four core courses under their belt, they're going to be, we're going to have a culture of discipleship where the little ripples are all over Georgetown. So, if the danger is we're all running around regurgitating unhealthy things we've picked up from the watered-down evangelicalism of our day, the fix or the solution is a library of resources and, uh, more profoundly, a commitment on our part to equip you through this discipleship hour. There's a second danger, too. 
It's the danger of individualism. When we talk about everyone doing the work of ministry, you can start to say, okay, it's me and God's spirit and my Bible in isolation figuring out what I'm supposed to do. And pretty soon, we just become a collection of 250 individuals retreating to our own island. Or maybe we have a few people on our island with us, but we got our island over here and they got their island over there and we're kind of looking across the pond at each other going, what's going on? You know, we don't want that. And so... To address that, so we're not just a collection of 250 individuals, so that we're a community. We, we want to have some, some shared practices, some shared models that we all understand, a, a common language that we have for talking about what we're doing. If you think about it like my uncle's garden, we do want to have some planning and structure in it. Okay? There's different tiers, and these kind of plants go well together over here, and you know, there's some order and planning to it. So, we're going to have for our church three basic paradigms for growth and discipleship within our church. And we want everyone in our church to, to be really familiar with what these models are and what, what we call them, how it works, what they're called, that type of stuff. So here are the three models. One is called one-to-one Bible reading. It is what it sounds like. You grab somebody and you say, hey, would you like to take the next six weeks to read through the book of Galatians with me? We'll meet once a week over lunch or for breakfast or whatever on the weekend. We'll read through a chapter and we'll discuss it. And then we'll pray for each other in light of that. You can do that with a believer in our midst. You can do that with somebody who's not a believer. Maybe you're getting to know somebody at work and they have some questions about Christianity. Oh, I never met a, I met a, never met an evangelical Christian before. I've never met somebody who really believes the Bible. Hey, have you ever looked at the Bible? Have you ever read it? Would you like to read it? Would you like to read through, you know, the Gospel of Mark with me? We can take seven weeks and do that. So that's one model that we want to have, one-to-one Bible reading. The next one is called core prayer groups. In core prayer groups, you get together with three, two or three other people. So they're groups of three or four. And you meet either every week or every other week. And you come to that meeting having prepared. And you prepare three things, three prayer requests that you want to share with others. The first prayer request is an area of Christian growth that you want to have. So I need to grow in discipline, or I need to grow in kindness. I'm, following, I'm finding that I'm prone to gossip, so I need to cut off the gossip, or you know, something like that, an area of, of Christian growth. The second one is a measurable spiritual goal. So I've gotten out of the habit of setting aside morning, time in the morning for prayer, and I want to get back in that habit. So between now and when we meet next week, I want to just spend three mornings where I've set aside that time for prayer. Something where you can say, yes, I did it, or no, I didn't do it. So it's measurable. And the third, the third prayer request that you come is with something that's going on in your life that you'd like prayer for. But the key is, then you look to the scriptures and find a Bible verse that should shape how they pray for you in that life situation. So that's why you have to prepare, right? You think about these things ahead of time. Then you come to the meeting... It's, it's not, you know, hey, let's all talk for an hour and a half about nothing related to this. You, you share your prayer requests, and then you're committed to, on a daily basis, praying for those other two or three people in light of their prayer requests until you meet again. You do it for a set interval of time. You, you know, it's not something that goes on forever. None of these are. The things you say, let's do this for three months together, or let's do this for six months together, or let's do it, you know, you c- figure out your interval of time, and you commit yourself to it. So one-to-one Bible reading, core prayer groups, and the third one is growth groups. Growth groups is a bigger group of people. So the first one's one-on-one or maybe one with two, so two or three people together. The core prayer groups is three or four people, and it's focused on prayer instead of study. The growth groups is a group of people who are getting together with the goal of helping each other grow. That's why they're called growth groups. But again, specified period of time, and a specified thing that you're going to study. So, like Bev's group that's doing concise theology, 
the book Concise Theology has said, we're going to work through this book. We're going to do it for a set period of time. We're going to get together and study that. There's another group of women in our church who are getting together and doing a book called Disciplines of a Godly Woman. So you say, this is what we're going to study. Maybe you get together and say, hey, let's study the book of James together, and we're going to do it for 10 weeks, and we're going to use this study guide. And So you invite people to be a part of something like that. So that's a growth group. It has a particular focus, a set, time, a set period of time, and you do that. So what will happen is through the years, these three things will become common language within our church so that you walk up to somebody and say, hey, you want to be part of a growth group on, uh, what do you want to do, Josh? Marriage. Let's do marriage, all right? And uh, then, oh, that's sweet. Not that you need it. <laughs> that wasn't to be inferred. <laughs> we need it, no. Um, staff relations. <laughs> How not to embarrass your staff member in public. <laughs> we could do that one, too. Um, so you do something like that, and you invite a group of people to be a part of it. I've completely lost track of what I was saying. These become a common language so that when they, you hear them say growth groups, you know what they're talking about. So we'll do a good job up front, or we'll try to do a good job up front of regularly talking about these things, one-to-one Bible reading, core prayer groups, growth groups. So people come to have an expectation. Somebody in the church is probably going to ask me to be a part of something like this. And they're not weirded out when you do, and they know what you're talking about when you do. Now, of course, to do these things, probably all of them at some level sound, might sound intimidating to you, some of them more than others. We're going to train you. We equip you. That's part of what the equipping is to do, is to equip you to do these things. But these are three models that we want to have constantly in front so they don't seem foreign. So let me just put some flesh on that, right? How does that work? At any given time in the life of our church, there should be dozens of these types of things taking place. And depending on your schedule... You're probably involved in at least one and maybe a couple. So maybe you've, you've just finished six months of a core prayer group with a couple of women. And it's been this rich time and you've realized the benefit of praying in such a deep spiritual way for the same two or three people over a set period of time. And you've loved what's going on. You go, I want that to continue. So you approach one other person in that group and say, why don't you and I invite two other people, two other people who maybe aren't plugged into something like that within our church and ask them to be part of that core prayer group. So you go ahead and initiate that, even though you weren't the one who initiated the last one. Now you initiate that and you gather a group together. At the same time, you have this relationship at work that's been growing and, and, and the conversations are moving in a way you can tell the Holy Spirit's working this person's heart. And so you tell your core prayer group, be praying because I'm gonna, uh, this person seems like they want to know more about Christianity. And I'm a little nervous about asking, but I'm going to ask them if they want to do this. And so then you ask them, do you want to do six basic studies in kind of the storyline of the Bible? They say, oh yeah, I want to do that. So you start meeting with them at your lunch hour once a month or something like that. You know, so you have a couple of these things going on at the same time. Does that make sense? Everybody doing that, it happening with every member of our church doing these types of things. That's how it works. So again, our our plan, in one sense, is the anti-plan. It's just a call for you and me to be doing the work of ministry. But in another sense, what we're calling on here, or what we're calling for here, is a massive shift. The introduction of a discipleship hour, the call for everyone in our church to go through four core courses, the introduction of three basic discipleship models that any of us can utilize and initiate, a shared language and model for our whole church. And more profoundly, I think a whole new paradigm for some of us, a new paradigm for ministry. It's calling on all of us to be those little water bugs all around. And allowing that to be a deliberate and foundational identity of our church. These are not small things. They are big things. But as I lay out these ambitious plans, I want to close our time by reminding us that this is not something we can engineer. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit isn't waiting until the fall to start working in our midst. In fact, he already is working and has been working for a long time. I think of a group of men, older men from our church, who would drop their wives off for a Bible study and go out to Tim Hortons together. 
And they said to each other, we should study the Bible together. And they started studying the Bible together, and that was the birth of our men's fellowship that takes place on Wednesday mornings. I think of a woman in our church who meets regularly with a group of Muslim and Hindu women. She loves them and cares for them. She helps them with some of the transition to life here, and she studies the Bible with them. I think of two men in our church who are getting together every other week studying fatherhood and how to be better dads. I think of, I already mentioned this, the dozen women who are getting together every Monday night to study theology or the dozen women who are getting together to study uh, on Tuesday nights to study what it means to be a godly woman. I think of our young adults who get together on Wednesday night. And this was their idea, their initiative. They said, we should study the Bible together. We had this fun Sunday night social. In fact, tonight at our place, young adults come out. Little plug. But they, we were doing that once a month, and they said, we actually want to dig in and help each other grow. So they started a study together, and then John and Catherine Heron got involved, and every week they study the Bible together, they pray for each other, and they're helping each other grow. I think of the parents of our young adults. There's a group, there's a, a couple of people who are parents of young adults saying, it's hard knowing how to parent young adults. And, and we feel very alone in it. And so they started once a month getting together for earnest time of prayer, sharing their struggles, and laboring before the Lord in prayer together. I think of a young mom who built friendships with women through our Giggles playgroup, and as she got to know them, she learned that they were actually interested in learning more about Jesus, Christianity, and the Bible, so she's reading through the Bible with them and showing them the gospel. I could go on and on and on. There's all sorts of little ripples all across the pond already taking place. So I say this is something new. This is some new paradigm. It really is just what God's Spirit has been doing in our midst and putting out in front for all of us to see and saying this is what we all should be doing. It is abundantly evident that the Holy Spirit is already at work within us in profound ways. These are not things we can engineer. So we must pray. Would you pray with me that God would take this plan over the next few months as we think together on it, He can refine it, and then use it in ways that He sees fit.